God, we have sung much of Your greatness and Your goodness to us. And God, now we have the privilege of looking into Your Word that is by grace. You have given us Your Word that we might learn more about You. It is from Your Word that we make and write these songs that we can sing about You. It is by Your Spirit who works in us to open our eyes to the Scripture that we might understand and come to worship You. And so for that, we praise You, Triune God, for Your work on our behalf and bringing us to this place to gather with these believers to worship the one true God. So God, we praise You and we thank You for all that You have given to us. You have richly blessed us. Help us now as we study Your Word that Your Spirit would have free reign in our hearts, that You would open our eyes to our constant need of Christ. We pray this for Your glory. Amen. If we could go to Genesis. No shock there. Genesis 29. We will be reading Genesis 29 and 30. Just part of 30. Genesis 29 and the first 24 verses of 30. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. 
Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld you from the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may have birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come, so she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a seventh, second son, and Leah said, How happy am I, for women have called me happy, so she named him Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Excuse me. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son, Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. 
Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Maybe strange for me to say this again, but this is the word of the Lord. As we read this narrative, no doubt we are sometimes uh, confused as to why God would have passages such as this in Holy Scripture. And um, we come away maybe with the idea of uh, four wives are probably a bad thing. That might not be a bad lesson to come away from, uh, come away with. Um, but nonetheless, this is the text that God has given us for today. And um, I feel like it is uh, all too applicable uh, in my life and in my situation. And I pray that, if, um, that it might be the same for all of us who are gathered here today. This text, if you remember from last week, uh, follows up from Jacob's Ladder, as it's uh, so often called. Uh, Josh made us realize that it's more like a staircase. But nonetheless, there was uh, something where God is coming down to Jacob and Jacob is having this vision of God. And in this vision there in chapter 8, God reiterates some of the promises that he had given to um, Abraham and to Isaac. And now by reiterating those promises to Jacob, he's making it clear, as we've already known, that Jacob is the promised seed, the one that um, these blessings, God's people, uh, will come from Jacob's line. Remember that Jacob is the younger son of Esau, and God had given uh, this oracle to Jacob's mother, Rebekah, and saying that when these twins were born, the younger will serve the older, which is counterculture in those days. And uh, we saw that already in our reading today with the deception of Laban in the marriage of Jacob. These chapters that we read uh, do present some pretty wicked behaviors, don't they, on the part of the characters that are in the story. The main character, Jacob, the one who is the promised seed, is the one who's in the middle of all of this. He's, he's the guy that God has promised to bless all mankind uh, with a seed that will crush the head of the serpent. Jacob is the one, like the funnel of blessing for all of us. And we look at him and say, really? That guy? In two chapters, he, he's already deceived people, uh, nonetheless. In two chapters, he slept with four women, his four wives, twelve children, and yet God is faithful. Why would the Bible have this story in it? Why would God have Moses give us this story? Why would Moses write this for the people of Israel as they're on the verge of entering the promised land? We have to ask these questions because these are the questions for us to understand the meaning of why difficult texts are in Scripture, why something like this is in here. I think that through this text, God is telling Israel that he is faithful to fulfill his promises to Jacob, even through the discontentment and deceit of his people. God is faithful to fulfill his promises to his people, even though we are deceitful and discontent. Even though we are wicked people, God, is, God remains faithful. Our wickedness does not usurp the faithfulness of God. Our goal in this time today 
is to show our utter depravity and our discontentment and deceit that has permeated our lives. And that our only hope of getting out of that is that we would be made and made content in the faithfulness of God through the work of Jesus. Our only help of, help of getting out of this life that is down the slide of discontentment is being made content in the faithfulness of God through the work of Jesus. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we, in studying this passage, come to realize that we should be content in the faithfulness of God through the work of Jesus? Well, what I won't tell you is that one way begins Tuesday with a book study called You Can Change at the Kimmel's House at 7 p.m. I won't tell you that because that would be a shameless plug. Today, we are going to do this by the grace of God, as we do everything, as we seek to in any way obey God, in any way to believe and to trust in God and His promises. is only by the grace of God. So for that, first of all, we thank God for what He has done. And we revel in grace. So we thank God. We do this by the grace of God who has given us the scriptures to show us our sinfulness and remind us of God's faithfulness. I believe as God has led and studied that this text will give us some warning signs of how we see our own discontentment, which discontentment when left unchecked leads to deceit and to other sins that are more, maybe more outwardly. This text gives us some warning signs of our own discontentment and then gives us the remedy to our sin in those few instances when God shows up. So that's what we're going to be looking for today. We have three, four warning signs that I think we can see here in this text. Jacob, verse, the very first verse of chapter 28, 29, sorry, wrong chapter. Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Now remember, this is picking up from chapter 28. 28, God promises that I will be with you. Let's read it because that would be better for us to do. Behold, verse 15, verse 13. And behold, the Lord set, stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north, to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have, until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep, said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And then he worships God, anoints the stone, um, and then makes a vow as well that God will be his God and that he will... Um, he will follow after this God that has promised these things. So verse 1, immediately in chapter 29, Jacob goes on his journey and comes to the land of the people of the east. In one verse, we have a whole month of traveling that has happened. And so God already in one verse has proven himself faithful to a fugitive, Jacob, uh, who has deceived his family, who has taken a blessing that was not his in the family's sight and God's sight, it was always his. He needed to wait for God to give it to him. But here's a fugitive on the run from his family with a mission to go find a wife from his uncle's kids, uncle's daughters. That would be his first cousins. So he's told to go find a wife from his first cousins. So there in verse 1, 
We have 30 days approximately of journey in treacherous area that God has proven himself faithful to. That's helpful as we begin this chapter because all of a sudden, Jacob picks up his feet and begins this journey. And for over 30 days, this is just coming from Bethel, where he had the vision of God. He's been traveling before that. And then for 30 days more, he has traveled by himself and God has protected him. All of a sudden, he comes to a well. And it's almost as if, as we read the next two chapters, Jacob has taken God, tucked him in his back pocket, and gone on his mission to find a wife. We come to this scene of the well. And there are two scenes here in, these, in this passage, in, in chapter 29, that echo other passages that we have already come to. If you remember a couple chapters ago, this scene of a well has already come up. And the author here is showing us this well scene again, maybe even the very same well, to show us the contrast between the two people who come to it. Uh, this scene of a hero or a guy going to a well to find a wife is nothing new. We see it a couple of times in Scripture. And uh, I only point this out because when Jesus comes to a well and there's a Samaritan lady, the initial Israelite reader or first century readers are thinking the exact same thing. Hero going to a well, finding a wife, and yet Jesus gives her eternal life. So here there's a well, and we want to we pay attention. We want to kind of remember in our mind, well, where have we seen this again? Earlier in Genesis, Abraham sends his best servant to go find a wife for Isaac. Here, Jacob is sent on his own to go find his own wife. Abraham sends his servant, and the servant bathes the mission in prayer. Do you remember that? The servant says, God, if this is your will, if this is your doing, I pray that you would give me success. And, and then, God, would you even, he kind of lays out a fleece. God, would you even, when I meet this girl, would you even help her to like fulfill this sign that this is the one? Water all of my camels. That's a lot of work. Water all of my camels and do this. So that servant comes to a well and he's told by his boss, go find a wife for my son of these people. He comes to the well, bathed in prayer, finds this girl, Rebecca. The text says he wasn't even done praying yet and all of a sudden Rebecca's coming up. He finds this girl, Rebecca. She's beautiful. And then she waters all of his camels. And then it says that he's still wondering, God, is this the one that you want me to, to go get for my you know, servant Isaac or for my boss Isaac? They go to Laban's house. Laban's like, hey, glad to see you. You know, it looks like you've given some jewelry and some nice things to my sister. That's awesome. I'm hoping there's other gifts, you know, goodies for the family as well. And he's like, here's all my camels. And so Laban is very excited. We find out Laban is a flat character. It means he never changes. He's a deceitful, greedy man from the beginning. And so here in that first well situation, this servant is bathed the mission in prayer, goes to Laban, says, this girl, God has chosen her for my boss Isaac, and I need to take her. She's going to come with us. And Laban's like, well, let's give her 10 days and let's think this thing through. And after the servant speaks of how exactly God led him to that well, led him to Rebecca, she watered the camels, as he prayed she would, Laban and his brothers said, this has to be of God. Go, take her. Take her to your boss, Isaac, and you know, like, may she be blessed. So let's put that in our memory, as, uh, in our memory stick, as we remember what's going on right here. And we see Jacob comes to a well. 
He hasn't prayed. Comes to a well. He's pretty short with the guys who are standing around. He's like, hey, what are you guys doing standing around? Shouldn't you be? This is not even the time to water your flocks. And you lazy shepherds, you should be out like doing shepherd stuff, letting them eat grass. And this isn't the time to be here. And then they, you know, and then he asks them some questions about where they're from. And he finds out that Rachel is coming and, and that's his relative. He even says, while he was still speaking, verse nine, with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep. So similar situation before he's done speaking, this girl's coming. And so it seems as though God in the first situation was very providential, leading the whole thing as the servant had prayed it would happen. And here in this situation, God is still very providential and being faithful. And he's providing this bride, even though Jacob has never prayed uh, for this at all, at least as mentioned in the text. So these well situations are set up to show the contrast. Jacob then goes to Laban. And he, uh, it says that he tells him everything. Jacob receives, Laban receives him, embraces him, kisses him, and then Jacob tells him everything. What does Jacob tell him? He's, he's by himself, he's got no money, and he wants to marry this guy's daughter. That doesn't happen in those days, first of all. You have to have money to marry a girl. You have to give a bridal price to a family. So he tells him everything. And it's ironic that after he tells him everything, the greedy deceiver Laban says, surely you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Or you are of my bone and flesh. We're, made, we're cut from the same cloth. The same type of people. This whole situation from Jacob going on his journey to this well, to Laban's house, is not at all bathed in prayer. And there is no sense of gratitude on Jacob's behalf. When he meets her, when he meets Rachel for the first time, it says similar language as when Eve looks at the fruit, the forbidden fruit that she's not supposed to eat. Jacob lifts up his eyes and he sees Rachel afar off. When he meets her, then he kisses her and he weeps aloud, moves the rock, waters her, waters her father's sheep, and then she runs off and tells her father. This guy is like on an emotional roller coaster. He sees a pretty girl coming. He knows this is the family member that, you know, could be one of the people I can marry. He sees her. She comes closer. He's like, wow, she's pretty beautiful. And he, this stone on the well is supposed to be moved by multiple men. He musters up the strength somehow. I mean, remember, remember, this guy is a homebody. He's his, he's his mother's boy, mama's boy. And they're typically, you know, not known as people with lots of strength. But he must have been out doing calisthenics or something. Because here he moves the stone by himself. And then he gets up and he waters all her sheep, kisses her, cries, and um, kisses her, cries, and then says, hey, by the way, I'm your cousin, Jacob. And she goes home and tells her dad. I mean, this, this whole illustration is humorous in my mind because it's so different from what has happened before. And so as I'm looking at this, I think that the number one, the first warning sign for us as believers, when when we are struggling with contentment and we are struggling with God's will for us, the first warning sign that should trigger for us that maybe we are not seeking God, we're seeking satisfaction in something else. The first warning sign is a pragmatic praying or prayerlessness. Pragmatic praying or prayerlessness. In this passage, 
both chapters, there is no praying from any of the characters involved. It's strange because of the contrast that we have already seen in other texts. Another one comes up when Rachel is barren. Do you remember what happened? Uh, the grandfather, uh, Jacob and Rebecca, uh, that's not right, Isaac and Rebecca, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca is barren. Well, so was Abraham's wife. Remember Abraham's wife, when she was barren, she said, well, here, here's my handmaid. Go have sex with her that we might have a child through her. And then Isaac says, let's pray. And he prays for his wife and God opens her womb. And so Jacob's wife, the one that he loves, the one he probably claims, Jacob's wife, Rachel, is barren. She can't have any children. He doesn't pray for her. There's no praying going on. Instead, Rachel comes out with some sort of uh, emotional exaggeration. Give me children or I'm going to die. I mean, I'm, I'm reading this story going, this is no different than Hollywood that we're watching. Like, these people are, you know, I need this. Give me this. Sleep with her for me. And, you know, and we're reading it and can't believe it's in Scripture. And yet God is constantly through studying this passage, breaking me down and saying, yeah, but you are constantly looking at other things for satisfaction. You are constantly looking for the latest gadget. It's a small thing. The latest gadget to bring you some sort of satisfaction because your life is empty. And you think, if I just have iPad 2, just came out a couple months ago now, if I just have iPad 2, let's stick with something that just came out, the new MacBook Air. If I just had that, it's thinner, sleeker, it's faster, like two and a half times faster. It comes probably preloaded with Lion on it. I mean, it's sweet, right? And if we just have MacBook Air, the newest release, we'll be content. You know, think of what all I can do with it, God. And so there's some sort of a pragmatic praying or prayerlessness that goes on in our life. And we ask God for these things because of what, it, what we think it can do for us. James 4, if you remember, we preached a series through James last year. Uh, James 4, 3, let me read this. We'll read the, the whole passage later maybe, but um, James 4, 3. You ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. You want something, but you, you don't get it because God knows you're asking with evil motives. You have a sort of a pragmatic praying. The characters in this story just don't pray. Sometimes we're more spiritual than that. And we actually pray. But it's more of a, God, I need. One author states, when we're discontent, our prayers for material needs or desires can dominate everything else. We pray and pray and pray for that thing that we so desperately desire. We enlist prayer partners to intercede on our behalf. We fill out prayer cards so our pastors can get on the action. After a while, our prayers start to get edgy and demanding. We're no longer happy with God, with just God. Our desire for other things begin to choke out our love for the Lord. You used to pray for healing, for cancer, for disease. 
You used to pray that if it was God's will, that he would heal you. But now you pray for God to heal you now because you can't handle it anymore. You used to ask God to help you to be content in a trial and that it might bring you great joy in him. But now you don't pray. Because, well, we all know that doesn't really work. So I've got to get out there and go fix it myself. There's a sort of pragmatic praying or prayerlessness. Second warning sign is also a short-sightedness. A short-sightedness. This is seen in verse 21. Then Jacob says to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban makes a feast, gives, and then in the middle of the night slips in daughter Leah into the marriage bed. Do you think that Jacob does not know the cultural customs of the day? He usurped his brother. He defied the custom that he is now hoping is not in play in his case. He can only see right now what's right in front of him. And that's an overwhelming desire for sex or for Rachel. And so he says, give me my wife. I've completed my time. Give me my wife. And, and the problem is, when the deceit happens, when, when the, this ruse has taken place, Jacob's reaction. What, what Jacob should have done, maybe, maybe let's just put it on, on me. What I should do if there's a situation not like this, but let's say something else. What I should do is say, God, for some reason, this is clearly your will. And Rachel was not. Rachel, for whatever reason, is not your will. I will marry Leah. And I will be happy with Leah. That's not what happens. Because why? Leah's eyes, verse 17, were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. Well, of course he did. I mean, when the picture is painted like that for him, you have this one girl, she's beautiful. Every patriarch to this point has had a wife that thought my wife is so beautiful that like foreign countries will kill me because she's coming into their country. So I'll say she's my sister. So maybe he's thinking patriarch had beautiful wife, patriarch had beautiful wife. I need the beautiful one. Now, Leah's eyes were weak. I mean, people don't have any idea what that means. So we're not going to speculate. Most of the time, most there's most of the agreement that it just means that she doesn't have the sparkle in her eye that the uh, Eastern people, they think that's beautiful. She doesn't have a sparkle in her eye. And so Jacob's like, I hate you. Really, it's just she wasn't beautiful to Jacob. There's nothing about Leah. I don't I don't think the text just seems as though Rachel is beautiful to Jacob. And he is overwhelmed by this. So that to the point that there is a short-sightedness. I can't see past a marriage bed. I can't see past Rachel and I together forever. BFF. I can't see past that. Constantly in the New Testament, we are told to lay not up treasures on earth, but to lay up treasures in heaven. We are told to have an eternal perspective.
Sometimes short-sightedness is evidenced when we say things like, I need this. Or, like I said earlier, think of what we could do with this. As if you're really going to start some ministry for Jesus in your brand new Escalade. The kids need the DVD players. And they like the new sound system. I don't know where I come up with that. My problem is saying with this idea of short-sightedness, of not being content with my circumstances that God has clearly brought in. I'm studying. And I have to preach. And my son is banging on the door, wanting to come in and let me go outside and play with him on his Thomas train. Doesn't he know I have a schedule to keep? I have, I have to have this time to put in this work to get this done. We'll play after church. Or if he's napping and he wakes up in the middle or after only like a half hour, the same thoughts, discontentment of disappointment with my son because the fire engine woke him up. This happens all the time, parents. This happens all the time, single person. We are so short-sighted in that we're not looking really for God's best for what God has for us. And so we say, I'll settle for her. I mean, look, I mean, look at me. I'm getting older. I'm not exactly a prize. And she'll say yes. I think she loves God. And we're so, I need this right now. This is what God, He's promised to meet all of my needs. This is a need. I need Escalade for ministry for Jesus. The third warning sign. Well, some of us, sorry, might be tempted to say, that's not actually being discontent, what you're saying. That's just discontent with our children or discontent with surroundings maybe, but that's not actually like discontentment towards God. That's not saying, God, I'm discontent with what you've given me. You've given me the gospel and I'm grateful for that. You're just saying I'm discontent with my job or discontent with my standard of living or um, the fact that I'm, that I'm alone or that I don't have a job or whatever the case is. Is it okay to complain when we have cancer? Is it fine to be a little frantic when company's coming over because you're OCD about your house looks? I think that the real point in which we'll see in the third warning sign comes from our response. We might be discontent with society at large. We might be discontent with our neighbor, unsatisfied with the fact that they don't have the same standards for their children that we do. And so I'm not going to send them over to their house because they might watch or do or say something I'm not comfortable with. So I'm going to control it and I'm going to put them in the box and my kids will never have fun and never go outside and there's a cage in their garage. I think it's in our response when things don't go our way that show exactly what we were holding on to. So when we say, I'm not discontent with God, I have a growing relationship with the God of the universe. I'm, I'm not going to doubt that. But when, when discontentment, when something is pulled from you, and you respond, how dare you wake up after a half hour nap? I need to study. 
I'm not discontent. Rachel does this when she wants kids. There's a third. The third warning sign is emotional exaggeration. We have a pragmatic praying or prayerlessness on that behalf of the believer. Um, there's short sightedness. We can't can't see exactly what God's best is. The short sightedness also might be because you just don't see God active in your life right now. The text, if you notice throughout this text, God is not really active. He's mentioned when the, the wives are naming children, but he's not all that active in the text. He, he's not seen as, you know, it doesn't say God made Rachel come to the well at a certain time. God made this happen and God allowed that. that. So sometimes we are short-sighted because we're not walking with God and we're not... We're not having personal communion. And we, we thank God for saving us. But now it's time to get to work. I'm, I'm a busy man. And I have a lot to do. And we get short-sighted because we're not really seeing the big picture. It's like stepping into an art museum and you, you walk up to the canvas and you put your nose to the canvas. And the people behind you are saying, well, isn't this a beautiful picture of a scenery of Mount Hood? Mount Hood? All I see is a black blob. I could do this in five seconds. And they say, well, step back from the picture. No, I'm fine right here. I'm not discontent with the picture. I'm just saying. And that's what we do all the time. And so I think that the, the real sign for us when we say, I'm not discontent, is the response that happens when we're not getting what we want. When we don't get what we want, we show where our true satisfaction lies. So a lot's happened since we first saw Jacob or last talked about him in verse 21. He's, he's begging Laban to give him his wife so that, that he might go into her for his time is completed. He's served seven years for this girl. So Laban gathered, gathers all the people together and he makes this feast. But in the middle of the night, he switches daughters or at some point that there's a swap. And he puts in Leah instead of Rachel. And in the morning, verse 25, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob says to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then? And I imagine that as he's saying this next question, the words are ringing in his ears of his dad. Why then have you deceived me? You remember Jacob just deceived his father and his brother Esau. His father was blind, in bed, asked for a meal and wine. And when and Jacob comes in and deceives him by putting on hairy cloaks because his brother was a hairier guy. And he smells like him because he has his clothes on. And the dad says, you feel like him, but you know, the only thing that gives you away is your voice sounds like Jacob. Oh no, dad, it's me, it's Esau. Imagine what has to happen in this situation for Jacob to be deceived. The same thing is true. Jacob is blind. He goes in and it's dark. They don't have electricity. Probably a lot of alcohol helped him to be inebriated, intoxicated, so that he doesn't notice whatever the switch is going on. And in the middle of the night when he calls to Rachel, Rachel, I'm so glad we're married. Yeah, isn't it nice? And she pretends, Leah pretends to be Rachel. 
Whatever the case is, the exact same thing has happened to Jacob as what he did to his dad. Why have you deceived me? And Laban says, it's not done in our country to give the younger before the older. We don't do that here. You might have done that in your country, but we don't, we don't do that here. So we're going to set up another agreement and you're going to serve me for another seven years. Jacob has gone through this time of testing where all of his expectations of being a patriarch and having this family. Remember, he's just been promised your children are going to be the offspring that's going to be outnumber the dust on the earth. Jacob's been promised all of these things. And so he's expecting it. He needs a wife first and then he needs children. He's expecting all this thing. And now he has to marry this girl and wait for another one. Serve seven more years of hard labor. For us, as believers, we, we can't fathom stories like this sometimes. We, we think that this stuff is made up. Um, that's why people write books on, you know, were Adam and Eve real? Did they really exist? Because we just don't think that this stuff can really happen. And then, if we take a look in our own life, don't you notice sometimes, I mean, I'm, I'm only pointing out a few examples and maybe some silly ones, but don't you notice sometime in your own life where God is taking you through cancer? We think of cancer because that's, that's a disease that so often is prevalent in our, uh, prevalent in our mind. It kills. Uh, and we think of you know, big events, uh, buying a house, um, getting married, wanting to be married, um, job, losing a job, getting a job. We think of those types of things. Uh, but isn't it, isn't it easy for us to see our circumstances in which we live and to think, I have a plan in place, God, it's not quite meeting my plan. And so either I need to kind of go around and help God or God, you need to work a little faster because if you don't, I'm going to die. And it doesn't come to the point where we are saying this with Rachel right away. Rachel has seen her sister Leah give birth to a boy, give birth to a boy, give birth to a boy. Servants have given birth to boys. And Rachel is barren. And probably year after year, kid after kid, birthday after birthday, Leah saying, hey, can you watch my four sons while I go out to the field? It's just dagger in her side after another. And Rachel snaps. Give me kids or die, or I will die. So this is a warning sign, uh, a severe warning sign for us as believers that there are, there are definitely satisfaction issues in our life. This is the same thing Esau said when he wanted soup, or he would die. And we all laughed that he would sell his birthright for a cup of soup. We don't laugh too much when it's Rachel and she's saying, give me a son or give me a child or I'll die because we relate to that. Uh, You can't have children or um, you have a miscarriage or a child is born with a deformity. And we automatically think that somehow God has turned his face or God is not in control of all this. And doesn't he know that that, that I desperately long for children. 
Doesn't he know that I desperately long to be married because I have these motherly instincts, not me, but other people, to have children? Doesn't he understand this? Emotional exaggeration. This can look like three things. It can look like a whole lot more, but often it is evidenced in our life in three ways. Blame shifting. Back to the napping baby. It's all your fault. You woke up the sleeping baby. If you wouldn't have fed them that high processed, sugary, fat food, then they wouldn't have diabetes. Whatever the case is, I don't know. I don't know if that gives you diabetes, but I hear it does. I watch enough documentaries to know. We blame shift. This is what's happened from the beginning. Adam and Eve. If you wouldn't have given me that fruit, we wouldn't be in this mess anyway. Well, if he wouldn't have done what he did, then we wouldn't be here. Immediately when things don't go our way and what we so desire is taken from us or withheld or uh, doesn't look like we'll ever get it, there's blame shifting. Secondly, there's, there's a chance that there's often uh, anger towards God. God, why would you keep me single this long? I could be so much more useful in ministry if I was married. God, what purpose could you have possibly in not letting my children love and follow you? Why are they running from you when I pray for them so often? These are real, these are real problems. These are real things people are struggling with. Some in this body. And in no way do we want to take away the pain of some of these things. It's not as though I would be so cold to say, well, you, can't, you can't cry over something like that. Real Christians don't cry. I found myself just this weekend saying, real men don't cry. My son was crying. He's not even two. It's not as though we would be so cold to say that. Real Christians can't cry. Or you can't grieve over being diagnosed with something like that. But what we do want to say is, praise God from whom all blessings flow. God, you have given me this for a reason. And maybe it is my fast food diet that I eat every day. And I have diabetes. But whatever the case, you have given me diabetes. Other people eat fast food every day and they don't get anything. They live to be 110. But I eat it and I get diabetes and I die of congestive heart failure. Or whatever the case is. And so you riddled with disease or you riddled with problems. And God, why have you done this? We're angry with God. There's blame shifting anger with God. Thirdly, retribution. Sometimes I think this is uh, anger with God is, is sad indeed. But this is, this is often troubling for me uh, when we come to God's people or we come to other people that we might know and um, the response comes out, well, I've suffered through that for several years now. And so while I feel bad that you're suffering through that, it's, it's kind of like you, you're like, you should. I mean, it'll be good for you. God used it to help me some. So I think that there's going to be good times for God to grow you in things like that. And I'm not going to be as quick to help. And that comes up sometimes where it's, I mean, even in this scenario, we have two ladies who are fighting over babies and fighting over the love of a husband. I mean, it came up in the Mandrake story, right? Uh, Esau, uh, Reuben comes in with some mandrakes. I mean, Reuben is four or five years old. He's a kid. 
And he comes in with some mandrakes from the field, whether he was preempted by his mom or not. Comes in with these uh, fruit, uh, flower, aphrodisiac type thing that they thought would give you babies if you, I, I don't know, ate it, sniffed it, uh, ingested it somehow, but or just put them near the bed. But you, they're supposed to give you babies. And yeah, it shows what I know, right? Um, so Reuben brings them in and there's an exchange that goes on where the one who can't have children says, you know, give me your son's mandrakes um, and I'll let you sleep with my husband because he loves me. He doesn't really love you, but we'll make this deal. And um, there's there's a sort of retribution because Leah says, you know, uh, he doesn't he doesn't love me. And you want you've already taken my husband. You want to take my son's, you know, mandrakes. I'm kind of I kind of want to keep the mandrakes because I know you want a child desperately and you can't have one. So neener, neener, neener. I've got four, you know, and. Sometimes this happens, and I think it's uh, horribly sad for us as believers to ever have it said of us that we are not compassionate when someone else is going through something similar that we have gone through or are going through. So may it not be said of us. We have, secondly, first of all, we have these warning signs that we see in this text. And I know that we have jumped uh through some of this text, a lot of this is narrative detail that um, you pick up just from reading it. And it would be somewhat fascinating for for us to go through a lot of the details. Um, but I don't think that it would be as helpful as maybe pointing out um, one of the main themes that I think God is wanting us to learn from this passage. So uh, forgive me for not going through every single detail. Um, there's a lot of verses and we didn't want to um, just trickle through all of that. So secondly, we've seen the warning signs. Secondly, we see the remedy. There's a couple times where God comes up in the text. Verse 31 of chapter 29. Jacob has just finished his week with Leah, and now he's married to Rachel as well. Verse 30 says, that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. Verse 31, When the Lord saw Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. It doesn't say that God closed Rachel's womb. It just says that she was barren. When the Lord saw Leah was hated, God sees that, that Leah is hated. Later, God remembers, he hears Leah when she's crying out for another child, when she has stopped being able to bear children, she sells the mandrakes, God hears her. And then in verse 22 of chapter 30, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. What resolves the tension in this story is God. So all along, so far in Genesis especially from Genesis 12, we have seen that God has a promise that he's given to a specific family. And he promises to give them uh, land, seed, and blessing. And in this story, God has promised in chapter 28 that I will give you descendants more numerous than the dust on the earth. And here for the first time, through deceit and discontentment, we begin to see not just one offspring, one child born to a family who is barren, But we see 12 children, 11 boys and one girl, and eventually Benjamin comes. But we have 12 children who in this text are born to four wives. 
And while right now the idea of four wives is not condemned in Scripture in Genesis, it will be later. Um, God is fulfilling His promise through the deceitfulness and the discontentment of His people. There are 12 nations that will rise from this text. And the beauty is that the seed, the one the seed of blessing comes from, is not Rachel. It's not Joseph. For the next uh, rest of Genesis, we, we're going to begin studying Joseph in a couple chapters. And everybody's, everybody thinks Joseph is the man. I mean, he's perfect. Um, but the seed of blessing comes through Judah. He's not the firstborn to anyone. He's not the secondborn or the thirdborn. He's the fourthborn to the wife who is unloved. The wife who is given at the first. God's promise has gone through all four of these women and blessed them. When we just sit back and go, God, why? Why all of this? Sleep with my servant. Do all this because I can't have children right now. And God says, I, I am going to be faithful. I am a faithful God. And so what I promise, you can count on. And you can put your money on. So the remedy for us who are so often discontent in this life, so often unsatisfied with the lot God has given us, or you know, maybe not even dissatisfied with the lot God has given you right now, but unsatisfied with, I don't, I don't quite have what my neighbor has. Or we, we make up these illustrations of what we think, what our standard of living should be, or what I am due, what I'm owed by God. So the message for us, the remedy for us, I think is found in two passages. First, Philippians 4. Well, well-known passage and often taken out of context. You often see verse 13 on bumper stickers or Christian t-shirts. And sadly, the person wearing it probably has no idea uh, the context or the idea of which what he's saying. Uh, it's probably on like Christian weightlifting t-shirts or something like that. Uh, I used to, I went to a couple of, they weren't concerts, but shows of uh, this group called the Power Team. Anybody ever hear of those guys? Power Team? Was a, I mean, we would say HGH now when we first saw, you know, like if we knew what HGH was. Uh, muscle men who could do anything. They were my heroes. And they probably had shirts that said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4, verse 11, and we'll read through 13. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little and how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of contentment. We're all like ready to write down, right? Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Where's the secret? He said, I've learned the secret of being content. I know how to have a little and how to have a lot. What's the secret? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can lift 150 pounds. I mean, that's, that's big for me, so don't laugh. I can do all things. No, he is saying I'm able to be content if I'm poor and don't have food. And I'm able to be content if a church is just, in his situation, taking an offering and giving me money. I can be content in both of those circumstances, not because of any like man-made secret that is out there that if you 
trek up into the mountains in Tibet, you learn from a guy in an orange robe. He's saying, I'm able to do all things. I can do any of those. I can be content in any circumstance only because there's someone who strengthens me. Him who strengthens me. We find out in earlier chapters in the same book that the one who strengthens him is Christ. Excuse me, I didn't write it down. That's always bad. Verse 8, I count everything as loss. He's just told us everything that used to be important to him. All the things that he was putting all of his, his money on to satisfy him, he's counting it all loss. He's counting it all loss for what? For the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness in my own that comes from the law, but one that comes from faith in Christ. Christ, the righteousness of God, one that depends on faith, that I may know him. The secret that he has, that Paul has found as he's writing this book from prison, and a book that is typically given the theme of joy, joy to Christians, and we think this is a book of joy, and it is. I can have joy in all things because of Christ who strengthens me. So when we're going through life, as we say, and my marriage has fallen apart, and I'm praying and I'm begging God for a better marriage, and I'm asking God to help my marriage, and so all my focus and my attention is on my marriage. What's the problem? And the problem is I'm trying to be strengthened by a better marriage. Trying to be strengthened by circumstances going my way instead of trying to be strengthened by the one who strengthens me. God has given us salvation in the gospel through Jesus. That's the only way in which we believers can be strengthened to say, my marriage is falling apart around me and I currently don't have a job. And I currently, you know, because of that I'm hungry. I don't have lots of clothing, whatever the case is. And yet I can be content. And even though I want to work on my marriage because that's a, big, that's a big problem, it's an eyesore, and I need to work on that. But I can be content because it is God who is working in me. Now, all of those illustrations just came to mind. So, like, I don't, you, mean, you, you might be saying, well, that, you know, it doesn't make sense if your marriage has problems and you're probably not pursuing Christ. But don't, don't analyze the analogy too much. Let's look to the scripture. So, we can be content only by the one who is strengthening us as we pray and we ask God to come into our heart and to save us from our sins, we pray and we ask God to come into our heart and continue to strengthen us because we're still sinning. Second passage is James 4. I knew we'd come back to this. James 4. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. We're not murdering, but we just, we're discontent. We're lashing out. There's emotional uh, uh, problems that are going out and we're causing problems. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. We read this earlier. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passive, passions. 
You adulterous people, do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Jump down to verse 6. Because we're talking about enmity with God, whoever wants to be a friend of the world. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if God gives grace to the humble, then verse 7, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. This is sweet. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and praise be to God that he will exalt you. You want the secret to contentment? You want, you want the secret that you feel like God is holding from you because you're single, because you're poor, because you're needy, or because you're rich and you're still discontent? The secret is submit yourselves to God. God's will will be done. Let's humble ourselves, submit to God, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. How sweet is that? For the God of the universe who has put all of this plan into place to save a people that from thousands of years ago, He has done this through deceitful and sinning people who are constantly discontent. He is continuing to do it through sinful, discontent, deceitful people who are sitting in this room. So brothers and sisters, let's not try and say, well, I'm going to work really hard and I've got a three-step process. And I'm going to go to a book study on You Can't Change. No, we're going to draw near to God and He will draw near to us. The remedy is Jesus. The remedy is the gospel being played over and over again in our lives. And that is cliché. The cliche is gospel-centered living. But the truth is gospel-centered living. And it's a cliche because it's true. And sometimes we say, well, it's so cliche. Why are you always talking about the gospel? I dare say that if I ever stop talking about the gospel, that one of you would put me out of my misery. One author states that this promise that God has made in Genesis comes to final fulfillment only through Jesus, who sends out his disciples, his followers, to make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28. Through faith in Jesus, Gentiles can also be descendants of Abraham and inherit the blessings of Abraham, Galatians 3, 7. On the last day, there will be a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. Revelation 7, 9. Only through Jesus will Jacob's offspring become like the dust of the earth. God is faithful to keep His promises and has been since the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Since before all time. So submit yourselves to God. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your grace has come down to us where you are even making promises with your people. Uh, you have opened our eyes to the gospel, and that was more than we ever need. And so the mere fact that we are discontent with any circumstance or situation or person in our life is absurd. You have given us everything that we need 
for life, for godliness in Christ, in his finished work on the cross. So, God, I pray that that, that is our rally cry. That is what we are looking for. We are satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. I pray that you would help us today, that you would begin this process. As Paul says, I have learned to be content. I pray that this is a process we leave here. And as believers, we help one another to grow and to continue to look to Christ. We don't fuel discontentment by gossip, but we push others towards Christ. And I pray that that would be our goal, our desire uh, to grow in that, that we might be drawing near to God. And in like matter, seeing him draw near to us. What sweet and beautiful promises you have given us here. We pray that this might be um, our passion, our desire is Christ and to know him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.